You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. He was a big, big kid, and I grew up old in Pennsylvania. When I met him, he taught me how to be a kid. Life was just one big toy. Actress, comedian Edie Adams. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Adams was a very popular TV and movie star of the 1950s. She was known for her comic impressions of sexy singers. Born on a mountaintop <laughs> in Tennessee. And her own wonderful singing voice. When you get those blues in the night. But eventually, Edie Adams became even better known, more widely known, for being the wife of legendary television comic Ernie Kovacs. The Ernie Kovacs Show! <laughs> Starring Ernie Kovacs, Edie Adams. They were, in fact, a popular comedy duo on TV in the 50s. Their story has a tragic ending, though, because in early 1962, Ernie Kovacs was killed in an auto accident. Now, he was the only occupant in the car, so it was never determined exactly what happened. But Edie Adams has her own idea, which you'll hear in a few minutes. I met her in 1990, when she finally wrote the book the publishers had been after her to write ever since Ernie Kovacs's death. So here now, from 1990, Edie Adams. How did you come to decide that the time was right to write the book right now? <laughs> because I started in 1962, <laughs> and they wanted a book about my life with Ernie, and um, it seemed like a good idea, and I started it, but then I read it, and it just didn't seem like a good idea. Then I put it away, and I pulled it out in the 70s, and I thought, well, let's go again, and I got uh, Swifty Lazar as an agent, and I got this, and I started again. And then uh, they offered an advance that I, as I'm pinching my nose, thought was not enough money, <laughs> and I put it away again. Then I pulled it out, uh, oh, I don't know, about four or five years ago, and I said, well, let's start on this again. Now, what is this, 30, 30 years? <laughs> 30 years in the room. And um, I started on it, and it, by that time, I had accumulated 1,500 pages. <laughs> and uh, everybody, well, you can't do it. So I started, and I started to edit, and I started. Finally, I got my writing teacher, Robert Wendler, from UCLA, and I said, uh, Robert, you know, I've been at this, and they've now given me money, and if I don't finish it by this time, you know, and he said, okay. And he looked at it, and he said, first of all, it's two books. You can't do it in one book. But he, with his nice editing eye, he could see this. I just write down when I feel something that I don't like. I write about it, and I don't know what it's about till a year later when I look back. Oh, here's what was bothering you. That's mm. what this is all about. So there's a lot of garbage in this 1,500 pages. But uh, it seemed to me, as we did this one, and Robert and I did this one on the telephone, we're both <laughs> in you – want, you want to talk about the odd writing couple? He hates to write with – and I don't want anybody around me. So we finally, since we know each other, 
each other so well, I said, why don't we get on the telephone? And we did for a couple of hours. Then we got a set of headphones. And by this time, we could edit like three ways. We really had it worked out for two independent cusses because his style of writing is a little different. He writes the, you know, the mom went off at midnight, and then he tells what happened. I say it was a dark night, and we looked around, and, there's a, and the punchline is a bomb went off at midnight. So I said, okay. Structure is you, comedy is me. We got along. This thing went so fast once we got, you know, that all straightened out. And I would say that this one is kind of on the outside looking in, and the next one is going to be the inside looking out. I was just going to say that your book ends with the word I've never seen a book end with before, intermission. Yeah, well, it's... You take time now. Now the next one, we can just take a little more time. We got everything in that everybody wanted. Everybody's happy. We've got all the names and all the people and all the places as they happened. Now the next one, I want to take the next. This one ends about 63, 64. The next mm-hmm. one is going to be, I think, about working women. I don't Because suddenly I was into the workforce, and in those days, women were supposed to not be in the workforce. And when Ernie died, I was... Um, widow. Even though the term head of household was not there, I indeed was responsible for six people, and I had to put myself into the workforce. And uh, I would get very angry that I couldn't deduct child care. A man could. And he could take along his, quote, secretary and uh, deduct her. But if I took a secretary along, I might secretly be using her for child care. You know, some of these things were so awful. And... um, there were a lot of things that the women's movement would say, well, you're an independent warrior. And I said, you people are crazy. I'm looking for a kitchen. I'm doing this because I have to. And I don't want it all. I only want half. And I think they're finding out that superwomen are not happy. I was not happy doing it all. I need help. <laughs> was, there a, was there ever a part of you that, that worried that you would be remembered in posterity as Mrs. Ernie Kovacs and not as Edie Adams. Well, I still am. Do you know I've been a, a widow of, of let's 1962. What is that? That's that's so getting close to 30, 30 years. years. And uh, Geraldo's show called up and they wanted to do a show on celebrity widows. And I said, you know, how long could I have been married twice and divorced twice since then? But it's funny, the public image of you is that they don't want to know. And even though you say that, yes, I've been married and divorced and other things have happened, they just want to know that. But that's all right. I don't care. I'm, you know, I'm happy in what I'm doing. Doesn't but here's this. You, you spend a whole book, which is a, mar- it's a marvelous book, too. I finished it last night. And Thank it, you. it really is good. And it's for someone who is just barely young enough to remember uh, the, the first, the, the network show with you and Ernie, I mean, to go back beyond that, I mean, further back, and to tell us about your childhood <laughs> and your growing up. This was quite an adventure for me to read all about this. Well, it's um, it's something I felt I had to do, because the second one, as I say, is going to be, how does a little girl from Pennsylvania get into the center of all of this nonsense and marry this crazy guy? And uh, But the next part is more about the feelings and uh, different, a little about working women, I think. I, I don't know what it's about yet, but it's all, it's down, it's not organized. But uh, yes, that, I just wanted to write about myself. That's the only thing I'm qualified to write about. <laughs> the, the, just the, the, the innocence of you shines through on all these pages. The, 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 when, when you wrote down in your appointment book, to see, you were going to see Ernie Kobachs. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I didn't think I heard it right. Was it Kobachs? Kobachs? <laughs> 
I didn't know who he was. Your first impression of him, though, was what? Well, I had just never seen anybody like this. I mean, in our family, nobody existed. Here is this fellow with a... A mustache and a cigar. Now, in those days, everybody had a little short, crew-cut, blonde, blue-eyed, and a hat and a foreign name. I mean, I just... And he, he looked so menacing, but he spoke very softly. He never raised his voice. And I just didn't know what that was. I just never met anybody quite like that. And his physical effect of him on me was just... I just never met any... From the time I met him till the time he died, it was just... I just never knew anybody like that. And it just... Opposites or whatever... Um, and, of course, my family was appalled. <laughs> they just didn't like this at all. But after I met Ernie, there was nothing that anybody could say that would deter me from him. I mean, that's all. That was it. Gee, what a personality he was. You go, you go back and look at the old videotapes now, uh, as crumbling as they are and ragged on the edges. Oh, well, I have that, that. This I'm allowed to say since for two weeks now. we I have made a deal with HBO, and I have uh, leased them 140 half hours that maybe 120 haven't been seen. This is from 1956, and they are in mint condition. The only smart... I knew he was a genius. I don't know whether it was my Juilliard training where we would sit and discuss art and what are you, the vessel through which... Because I'd say, Ernie, how did you do that? And he'd say, I don't know, I just close my eyes and the back of my head, whatever's there, gets on the screen. And I said, he's talking about art, folks. And... um, I knew what he had did was special. So I went uh, after he died to ABC, and they had some, and I bought, I bought about, well, a hundred and some hours of daily shows, plus the early uh, shows that where we replaced Sid Caesar. Mm-hmm. And some of the, they haven't been seen by anyone before, and they will be seen starting in uh, the fall, late September. And I don't know about your cable company here. Mine in California has HBO, but they don't have the Comedy Channel, those dirty dogs. So if you want to see the Comedy Channel... Call up your cable company and say, hey, guys, it's on. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll put a little pressure on the Put a little pressure on those people. After this short break, Edie Adams muses on the hugely successful career she could have had. Now back to my 1990 conversation with Edie Adams. Now, something else that that struck me as as I'm reading your book, I finished it last night, how did you wind up, do you suppose, as Edie Adams' singer, comedian, actress, as opposed to Edie Adams' seamstress, Edie Adams' voice teacher, uh, any of half a dozen other things? Well, I was groomed to be a teacher. That My mother was a music teacher and an English teacher, and that's what I was supposed to be doing when I went to Juilliard. However, deep down inside, I knew I was going to be something else. Um, the seamstress uh, part, my step-grandmother was a German seamstress, and she just took me on as an apprentice, and I just just lapped it up. I was making set-in sleeves and doll clothes, my own clothes at 10 years old, dresses. And I'd go to sewing in school, and they were hemming dish towels, and I'd be in wearing clothes that I wore, you know. It was something. I just had a natural aptitude for that. And uh, in those lean years when I was at Juilliard, I could go in uh, in my modeling days and look at a model wearing uh, something that wouldn't, you know, a sample dress that wouldn't be on the market for eight months, and I would just look at it very carefully, and I could go home and go to the remnants, and I could put that together and be in in two nights in El Morocco wearing the same very elaborate dress. (laughs) And 
if I didn't make it in my Juilliard exam, that was my backup because you can't plan ahead at Juilliard. You have to take the exam, and it's what your voice is doing at that moment. And so it's, I guess, one of those gambles that I started to take <laughs> back then. But the backup was Trapagan, and I still like to play with clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, you could have been you, you could have been a multimillionaire by now by selling your own line of designer clothes. Well, in the next book, you will see that I started. Uh, Inadvertently to pull all of my clothes. I, when I was um, when I had my own television show, I was smart enough as the producer to hire myself as the costume designer. So I'm in the union as an apprentice. Now, as an apprentice, I was smart enough to take the entire show's budget and go to Jimmy Gallinos, whom I consider the genius of the world, along with Balenciaga and Charles James. There are just maybe five people that are top top designers, and I would buy his entire collection. And of samples, so that any time you see me on my television show, you see me in a $4,000 dress. And I could only wear it once, so I would put it in storage. And about 10 years ago, I thought, gee, those things are pretty good and they're timeless. Why don't I pull them out and rent them, Edie Adams' close-up clothes, which I did, and we went on strike. So I did, that didn't work, so I had a cutter in a workroom. So I sketched up some things, and they looked pretty good. I took them to Neiman Marcus, and uh, they bought every one of them on consignment. So suddenly I was selling $4,000 gowns. And um, finally one, I didn't know how to price. I don't know the rag business at all. And she said, I can't find your dress. And I said, what? Then she called back. She said, I found it. It's in the window. Well, I was there with my Polaroids taking, you know, it was like my child had just won me a war. I, I took pictures of this dress, and uh, it was the center window at Neiman Marcus. Then I designed for all 12 stores. Then the trouble really started. That's a commitment that I, I don't know the business end of that, nor do I want to. But I was determined, and I sold to all those, and I had a great $40,000 first order, but it's not for me. If I do it again, it's going to be one piece, <laughs> and then uh, they do all the things. Because they wanted me to get a factory and oh, do all that. I don't want to do that. That's the creative end I like a lot, but I sure don't like the other end, and I'm not good at it. <laughs> I want to go back and touch on on one thing. Recently, Judy Belushi was here, and she's also got a book out now about the the ordeal of being a very public widow of a very public man mm-hmm. at what should be a very private time. Was, ever, was it difficult for you at that time? Yes, it was. First of all, uh, Ernie himself would have preferred no funeral. He always mm-hmm. talked about it. But there were so many people that said, you know, we got to say goodbye somehow that, you know, you say, well, there should be some kind mm-hmm. of a thing. And it is a private time, but you feel you owe a certain... I don't know. I, I found it very, very difficult. But... Uh, he had the they, people said we have to say goodbye, so I chose to do with a funeral. He probably would have uh, said wouldn't have liked it, but I, I felt I needed to say goodbye too. You know, it's a. I also know so many people who years and years and years after the fact still are unable to accept if, if they've suffered a loss that has never been fully explained. That mm-hmm. that. that I mean, Ernie was alone in the car. We don't know yes. exactly what happened. We can kind of reconstruct. We can conjecture. We can speculate, mm-hmm. uh, as Diana Rico did in her book, uh, and maybe tried to figure out 
kind of what may have happened. Maybe mm-hmm. he was trying to light the cigar with both hands or whatever. But have you resigned yourself to the fact it just it happened and that's it? It's, well, it's by done? now I have, but it's taken quite a long time. No, I know when he had the unlit cigar because that's whenever we would drive. He was a terrible driver, and I was always, you know, if he was light, he sometimes would be writing out notes for his show and lighting his cigar with a match with two hands, and I would automatically just take the wheel. And uh, he was steering with his legs. He said, oh, he learned that in high school when he used to drive with his arm around the girl. (laughs) But for somebody in the front seat of the car, I just automatically, you know, half drove the car even when he was driving. And I know that if he were trying to light that with a match, because he wouldn't do it with the uh, cigarette holder, because you don't light cigars with lighters or cigarette holders, you had to light it with two matches, that, uh, no, his attention would be somewhere else, absolutely. But why it happened, or uh, it's, I can't explain it. And I'm a, I've been through all kinds of grievance counseling and different things, but it still is, uh, I denied that he was gone. I wouldn't get rid of his clothes. And when I finally had to, you know, I just had to. Mm-hmm. Um, I still just didn't. I figured if the clothes were there, maybe you know, I don't know. It's something I can't explain. Well, there's, there's, there's something has come through after all these years because by the time mm-hmm. I finished this book, I'm ready for the next one now. I mean, by the time I finished, I came. Away, I, I felt good. I, I didn't feel like I'd just read a very depressing book. I felt like oh, I no, read a no, very, a very uplifting book. No, well, Ernie was, he would get up on a manic high. This is the greatest orange juice, the best scrambled eggs. And everybody said these brooding comics. Oh, no, no, no. He just didn't take anything seriously. And if you wanted to have a serious discussion and say, now, look, we've got it. And he'd say, you know, you've got great legs. I mean, you couldn't, you just couldn't (laughs) argue with him or you couldn't have a good battle. He didn't like to battle. And there was no reason to. He was a big, big kid. And I grew up old in Pennsylvania. When I met him, he taught me how to be a kid. Life was just one big toy. And uh, I, that was a whole cranking around from my uptight upbringing. And uh, I think it was great. Edie Adams died in 2008. She was 81. And you can find easy Amazon links to Edie Adams' book at our website, HeardEverything.com. And... While you're at HeardEverything.com, be sure and listen to my 1994 interview with one of Edie Adams' television contemporaries from the 1950s, the co-star of The Honeymooners, Audrey Meadows. They didn't go for a lot of little jokes. They let us work up to what I would call a big belly laugh that would bring applause from the audience. I mean, they were powerful lines. And my 1990 interview with the woman that you heard referenced a few minutes ago, John Belushi's widow, Judy Belushi. I think most people who think of John, they don't even think of him as married. When I would be buying something with a credit card or whatever, they'd always they'd go, oh, are you John Belushi's sister? I kept thinking, why did I think that? But I think it's because that's just they don't. That's just the first thought they'd have. I was clearly not his mother. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find now. I've heard everything on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, it's been 35 years since the Senate began hearings into what became known as the Iran-Contra affair. So next time on Now I've Heard Everything, my 1991 interview with the man who was at the center of that controversy, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. That book is much more than simply my belief that Ronald Reagan knew. I still believe Ronald Reagan knew and approved of what I did. I honestly believe that he has forgotten a good bit of what he knew. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.